apologize in advance. Um, I have been studying the heck out of this stuff, and I've loved I've loved this parable for years. But the more I've studied, the more research is available, and so there's going to be a lot of information that goes along with the kind of the doctrinal footings uh, on this uh, really powerful uh, chapter. Um, now, I want to start though? If we can, if we can begin, let's let's start with. Um, Jacob 4. Joseph Smith uh, once said, and he said, one of my keys for understanding uh, the words and especially the parables and things of the Savior is you need to know the questions that were asked that prompted the parable. Well, this is especially true with the allegory of the olive tree in the vineyard. Okay? Uh, and so we need to understand where Jacob is coming from, and then we'll look specifically. There's two questions he's going to try and answer, and then he's going to give us Jacob 5. So I want to get a head start on this. And it's, by the way, it's going to give you some idea of who Jacob is. We have precious little of Jacob's writings. Uh, but what we have is kind of amazing. Um, look at... Uh, Verse 4, for this intent we have written that they may know that we knew of Christ and had a hope of His glory many hundreds of years before His coming. And also we ourselves had a hope of His glory, but also of all the holy prophets that were before us. We knew it and they knew it. Now, we look at our Bible and say, yeah, but it's, you don't find this, you have to look to find the Savior. It seems to have been removed. Uh, yes, it has been. But now we're going to get some of this return that was actually in there in the first place. Now, but I want you to see something. He's going to say, um, Wherefore we search the prophets and have many revelations in the spirit of prophecy. Well, let me give you an idea of who Jacob was, and then we'll understand this. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to click on here uh, Alma 13. So now we're going over to Alma 13. Okay. Sometimes I know these flip back and forth and you don't always know I've hopped to another chapter and this goes so smoothly. So we're now in Alma 13. And Alma's gonna say is gonna tell us something about the priests that were active in the Book of Mormon. These priests were ordained after the order of his Son of God, verse 2, in a manner thereby that the people might know in what manner to look forward to the Son for redemption. He's talking about a specific order that they were being ordained to. And we're going to get down here. And they became, uh, verse 9, they became high priests forever after the order of the Son of God. Uh, they were called after this holy order. They were sanctified. Their garments were washed. That's 11. Okay, now, verse 14. Yea, humble yourselves, even as the people, and here's your clue, even as the people in the days of Melchizedek. Now, when he's talking about, I want you to become like the people of Melchizedek. These ordinances, verse 16, were given after this manner, that thereby the people might look forward to the Son of God, it being a type of His order, or being His order. Which order are we talking about? First of all, there's priesthood. 
Now there's a specific order, and a better way to say it instead of order would probably be certain keys. What keys did Melchizedek have and Enoch? Because Melchizedek repeated what Enoch did. Remember, Melchizedek had a city, right? The city of Salem, and what happened to it? It was taken up, as was the city of Enoch. What? So what are we talking about? The ceiling power. Okay? The ceiling power. Now, hang with me. I'm now going to hop over to 2 Nephi 6. Verse 1. Uh, now behold, my beloved brethren, I, Jacob, having been called of God and ordained after the manner of His holy order, having been consecrated by my brother Nephi, whom you look at as a king or a protector. Now that's kind of fascinating. Wow, how did Nephi protect them? How did Jacob protect them? And, and if they're part of this order... How, and if it's possible that they are part of this order, what power might they have had? Well, the ceiling power... To do what? The trees obey them. Yes. Okay, now, if you get this, now let's go to verse 6 in Jacob 4, and now this ought to make some sense to you. If you understand that these prophets were, were ordained and given specific keys... And they're saying these are the same keys that were given to Melchizedek. And that means Enoch. And that means we had them. Okay? And he's going to say, having in verse 6, having had these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken, insomuch we can truly command in the name of Jesus, and the very trees obey us. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. Now, remember all those stories we have of Nephi and Jacob moving mountains and rivers and trees and things? Nah, he left all that out. How much it happened, we don't know. How much they had to draw on this, we don't know. But they knew that they had the power to do it if they needed to. By the way, do we have any other prophets in the Book of Mormon that, that we know also had this power and used it? Who? In the Book of Mormon. Brother of Jared. Yeah, and? One of the later Nephites. Yeah, one of the later Nephites. In Helaman, what did he do? He's given the Lord, remember, he's coming out of the city, and the Lord says, Thou art Nephi, and I am God, and I give you the power to control the elements, and later he will use that to do what? Of a Bring in a famine and a drought. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? You ever wondered how Moses parted the Red Sea? Could very, that would make sense to me? I've looked at that. I don't have any. We don't have any records of him receiving that sealing power. Although we might have gotten it in the Pearl of Great Price that was given away. We don't have. Okay. All all I'm saying to you is that this is this is a this Jacob is much more powerful. And has been given some specific sealing keys that are just amazing. Okay? So, we can truly command in the name of Jesus, the very trees obey us. Uh, then he's going to say in 7, uh, 
The Lord God showeth his weakness that we may know that it is by his grace, his condescension. Oh, wait a minute. We know this one. Seven sounds a lot like Ether 12, 27. You didn't know that Moroni... I'll pop over there for just a second. And I will... And we know this one. This is one of our favorite verses in all of the Book of Mormon, right? Either 12, 27. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness, and I give unto meekness, that they may be humble and great. My grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. Now, we go back to Jacob 7. And God showeth our weakness, that we may know that it is by his grace. And who's more? And so. Uh, Moroni is probably quoting Jacob. Isn't that fun? Or at least is very aware of it enough. Okay? Alright, now. I wish we had time to spend on uh, verse 10. Brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from His hand. Now. Now we'll get in. I, I said there were two big questions that gives us Jacob 5. And, and we're about to get to one of them. Wherefore, beloved brethren, be reconciled unto him through the atonement of Christ. <coughs> Verse 12. Here's the, one, the first qu two questions. And now, beloved, marvel not that I tell you these things. For why not speak of the atonement of Christ? That's going to give you a clue. If I talk about the parable of the vineyard and the tame olive trees, you're going to tell me that the, this, this allegory is about what? The gathering of Israel. And would that be true? Absolutely is. It sure is. But what he is telling you is, but what the, Jacob 5 is at its deepest level is about what? The atonement. That in a sense, the scattering of Israel and the gathering Israel is an allegory in and of itself of the atonement. Now, for a second, let me just show something if you're not aware of this. Make sure I've got Yes, it is. Okay. In Romans 5, 11... I told you I was going to dump a lot of information on you. How are we doing so far? Swimming? Thank you. Alright. Romans 5.11 And were it not so, we also have joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the reconciliation. In, in Greek, it's uh, katalage. Anybody speak Greek? It's all Greek to you, isn't it? Okay. Definitely. When, uh, when uh, William Tinsdale was translating this into English from the Greek, he came across this, these writings of Paul. And remember for Tinsdale, part of the whole idea was, I need to take these ideas and then I need to put it in English words that will make sense to people. And that meant sometimes drawing on his own ideas. In some cases for Tinsdale, it means creating a new word. That the first time this word enters into the English language comes through Tinsdale's pen. This is one of those moments. 
when Tinsdale is looking at Romans 5.11, which by the way, we're talking a second, Paul had Zenos' writings in front of him. Just as a teaser. But Tinsdale is looking at this and he's going, reconciliation, reconciliation. What would be, I know what the concept is in Greek, what would be a good English word for reconciliation? And he didn't have one that really fit what he wanted, so he created a word. And the word was, at one meant. To be reconciled is to be at one. And so he created a word, at one meant. Atonement. That's where the English, that's where we get the word atonement. Okay. Now, but it's in the Book of Mormon, right? That word came through Joseph's mind is actually Tinsdale's words. Is that great? And it means reconciliation. Now, how many of us need to be reconciled? We are fallen, right? We have been torn away. When 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 we are when we turn our back on the atonement, what do we, what happens to us? We are scattered. We're, we're brought away. In the, in the case of the plan of salvation, we have fallen. We were reconciled with God. And then we, to go through mortality, we had to be scattered from Him and a veil drawn. So in our fallen state, we are scattered. And the idea being that ultimately the process of the at one is to do what with us? Make us... Think of John 17. Make us one with Him as I am with thee and make us one. Draw us together. And it means to be gathered back. To be gathered back. That is atonement. That's to bring us back into His presence. That's why when we start talking about Israel and we're talking about Jacob 5, we're talking about a process that when a, a covenant people is scattered, what's happened to them? What do they turn? What do they turn their back on? The at-oneing power. They turn their back on the atonement, and because of that, they get scattered. Now, at some point, we're going to find out the Lord works really, really hard to reconcile people, because He has a goal for Israel to do what? Bring them home. Bring them back. I want to reconcile. I want to. Gather like a hen gathereth her chicks. I want to bring them back together. They are scattered. In Hebrew, it's called the dysphoria. They have been scattered, and we want them to. We want them to make aliyah, come back, return, come home. That's what Jacob five is about: the scattering and the gathering. And at its deepest level, who is it really about? Us. So why not speak of the atonement, he says. Does that make sense so far? Comments? So when he was saying, why not speak of the... Yeah. It's kind of like saying, why shouldn't we? Yes, well, why would he pose it in that? Ah, okay. And she says, why, why would he pose it in that particular form? Well, that leads us to our second question. Thank you so much. Now, why shouldn't we speak of the atonement? 
And by the way, uh, when it speaketh of things as they really are, and of things as they really will be, and these things are manifested to us plainly. Ah, we come back to this plainness thing. What's the problem? Well, verse 14. The, uh, behold, the Jews were a stiff-necked people, and they despised the words of plainness. Last time we were talking about the old style in the Hebrew form of scripture and prophesying is that they liked what? <clears throat> Complexity and symbolism and stuff. It's got to be hard to understand. We like Isaiah. Why? Because we can interpret the heck out of it. We don't know exactly in the Psalms and what did that really mean. I don't know. And the rabbis can get together and go, well, we're going to endlessly debate about what this word and what that word is. And if we take this letter out and we put this vowel in there, then that changes a different word. And then we can, okay, now we need to go to the rabbi to find out what is exactly the interpretation of that. Well, I don't know. Here comes the word from this rabbi and he's going to explain and then we're going to know. Except that rabbi over there has a different interpretation. Oh my God! Perfect. Yes. The, the whole idea of the Latin and the educated and the scholarly and then the common people. We're not going to give them the the scriptures in in English. It's going to be in Latin among the educated. But that means that the early Christian fathers say we're kind of like the rabbis. You have to come to us for the interpretation of what this stuff means. And for Tyndale to translate into English oh. was like the peasant's language. It Why would like we put this lofty language in their terms? And remember Tyndale says, I want to write it so that even the common plowboy will understand. Meaning Joseph. Right. right. <laughs> so here was the problem. They were stiff-necked people. They despised the words of plainness and killed the prophets and sought for things they could not understand because of their blindness and blindness coming by looking beyond the mark. Let me stop for a second. Remember when Zacharias, when Zacharias comes to um, the Savior and he says, how, how do we enter into the kingdom? John 3. And the Savior says, a man must be Born again, born again, and what? What's his response? How does a man re-enter his mother's womb? And it's just—it was a very literal. It's looking beyond the mark. We're, we just don't understand this stuff because that's the way their minds were used to thinking. Well, let me talk about this idea of born again. I will go back into the temple and we'll get the Sanhedrin together and we'll sit around and endlessly debate exactly what this stuff might mean. And then we can pull in here, we can prove who's more scholarly, who's done their study, who really knows the Psalms and knew David. And Solomon really meant this. And, and, and Jacob says, I'm going to tell you in plainness, just like my brother Nephi did. So in a way that you cannot misunderstand. Now, that's why you look at when you go, well, then we're going to get Jacob 5, and that's an allegory, and that could be interpreted. If you really look at this, Jacob 5 is incredibly, beautifully, simply clear about what he means, especially when you look at it in light of the atonement. Uh, they must needs fall, for God hath taken away his plainness from them, delivered unto them many things which they cannot understand because they desired it. 
And one of those that they got that they had a hard time understanding was the, the uh, law of Moses. In fact, we do one more thing here. I'm just dumping a bunch of stuff on you. Um... Okay, it'll run. I'll run it to it in a second. Okay. Okay. All right. So here's so question number one is, uh, let me explain to you the atonement very clearly and very plainly. But if the atonement is reconciliation, that brings us to the second question. 15. I am led by the Spirit in a prophesying. Uh, it's in me that by the stumbling of the Jews, they will reject the stone upon which they might build and have safe foundation. They're going to reject Jesus, the Savior. Uh, but behold, according to the Scriptures, the stone shall become great and last and the only sure foundation. Wow. They're going to reject Him, but ultimately they'll build on Him. There's a question. How are they going to do that? How does this work? Well, so here's the second question. How is it possible that these Jews, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it, that it will become the head of their corner? How will that happen? And he says, ah, go back to the first question. That's why this chapter is about the atonement and about reconciliation. They will be scattered and I will bring them home. That's what it's about. Does that make sense? Okay. Questions so far? Yeah. Can I just say too that we forget that the first Christians were Jews. Yes. Okay, so he didn't go to the leadership of the Jews. No. He went to the common person, and many of them were converted. They so were. Whereas we say that the Jews rejected, they didn't. You know, the first Christians were Jews. He didn't come to the Gentiles. Ah, hang on to that idea, because we're going to start talking about grafting in a second. Okay, now, all right, so... Based on all this, so here's this question. Let's talk about the atonement, and then let's figure out how these Jews that rejected this will actually be reconciled. How do we, how do we, these, this great mystery? Oh, well, let me pull on a very ancient scripture then to teach this lesson. And he said, then he's going to say, okay, then let, let me give you the allegory of the wild and the tame olive trees. Now, let me, I need to do a little bit more pruning on this thing before we dive into this. Right. <laughs> need some background. Now, by the way, look, so look at, the first, look at the first line of this. Behold my brother. Who's he speaking to? Which brethren is he talking to? Literally. Uh, no, they're gone by now. Where is he? And we're back to, where does this whole sermon start? At the temple. So he's in the temple, probably, on the, uh, probably because the, uh, under the law of Moses, there's a time when the priest is going to actually 
and see if you see this coming. The priest is actually going to take time to do a, a bit of a sermon. He's going to come out. They're going to wait. He's going to go into the Holy of Holies. He's going to come out. He's going to declare today. They're all going to kneel. And then, they're, then he's going to preach to them. Guess what feast that is? Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. Yeah. By the way, that was the one that announced John the Baptist. It was, it was Yom Kippur. You're waiting for the priest to come out and he can't talk. And, okay? This is Yom Kippur. This is the Day of Atonement. This is the, the day that we're going to take. Uh, before we go in, we're going to have two goats. We're going to have uh, the uh, uh, Azazel goat and kind of the Jehovah goat. And we're going to take the sins and actually put it on the Azazel goat. And then we're going to kick him out of the temple. There's Israel's sins. Then we're going to take the Jehovah goat. We're going to take him into the temple. And he will be sacrificed in the temple. Okay, And then take his blood and put it on the horns of incense. So that it will rise up. Okay, All that. Okay, This day of atonement. And this, this, in all likelihood, we don't know for sure. But they're at the temple and he's having a discussion about the atonement. Pretty good chance it was a day of atonement. It's exactly where the word scapegoat comes from. Yes, it's exactly where the word scapegoat comes from. Right? Okay, so, so my brethren, he's preaching to the people in the temple. Okay? Now he says, do not, do not ye remember to have read the words of the prophet Zenos? They were familiar with this parable. They knew it. Haven't you read Zenos? Oh yeah, we know Zenos. Yeah. Who else knew Zenos? Well, that's the rest of the story here. Let me give you one fascinating little clue here. Uh, let's see how we come back to that. Um, recent research coming out of BYU is kind of fascinating. Uh, here's what they found is that they did a correlation between uh, in 1st Nephi um, 19 where uh, Nephi is quoting Zenos and the Savior in Matthew 24. And they find, I'm not going to spend a long time to go through this, but he's quoting the same passages. Well, um, Nephi is quoting Zenos. Who's the Savior quoting? Probably Zenos. We also have, when we get into this, we're going to find that Paul had in front of him the words of Zenos as well. In other words, uh, it's, we've always said, how come we can't find Zenos in the Book of Mormon? Where did Zenos go? And we'd say, well, obviously it was put in the brass plates and it was taken off. And so we, they never had it because it was in the brass plates so we didn't have access to it. Now we're beginning to find out that may not be true. We think Paul had access to Zenos. We think the Savior had access to Zenos. How about that? Yeah. Okay, so here's the information that we have. And I won't take time to go through all the research how we know this. We believe that Zenos was part of the, the uh, ten tribes in the northern part of, of Israel. Uh, Hugh Nibley used to think that his... You can find him in the Bible. Hugh Nibley believed his name was Sinus. 
C-E-N-O-Z, Sinos. And he believed that he'd found it. We don't have any way of doing that, but his words and descriptions, and now when we start talking about the parable of the vineyard, that would put him about 150 years prior to Lehi and all of that, but they had access somehow to his words. Okay? Alright, that's it. So let me uh, also then, before we start, while we're doing background information, then we'll hop back into the scripture. Um, when we were in uh, Athens, one of the things that you see when you get up on top of the Acropolis uh, is we get to the, the Temple of Athena. You can actually see the, the famous virgins of Athena kind of up wrapped around that, that corner up there. But the tradition is in Athens that when Zeus was getting ready to plant a city here, there was a contest between two gods to see who would get to, to form the city. And one, one of the suitors was Poseidon, and Poseidon takes his trident and he puts it in the ground and out comes Salt River, okay? which wasn't really helpful to the people. The other one was Athena. What she did was plant an olive tree. And that olive tree so blessed the people of the area that they called it Athens. And she became the patron goddess of Athens. And so at the temple of Athena, obviously this isn't an ancient, ancient um, olive tree, but they keep a tr an olive tree planted right by the temple of Athens in, in commemorations, because this is supposed to be the spot that Athena planted the olive tree that has then so blessed everybody, because the olive tree and olive oil become central to the entire culture. Incredibly central. You would measure a man by the worth of a man by how many liters of olive oil if you put that alongside, wow, he's like a hundred, hundred liter man, hundred liter of olive oil. Well, he's only a fifty liter man. You know, he's only got, he's only worth fifty because it was a currency. It was so valuable. Okay. So you get in, and, and it's and the belief kind of is is that because olive trees started around Israel, Palestine, that somewhere maybe maybe when uh, when the during the Greek. Uh, empire building um, during Alexander that they may have brought in reality the olive trees to Greece and so now you can't go anywhere in Greek land or the islands anywhere without running into olive trees all over the place it is an olive tree culture um, now but if we're going to take a step back and we say, okay, into this whole culture, think about the New Testament for a second. How many references do we have to the Savior that somehow tie back to olive oil, olive trees? The, yes. For instance, we've got... Uh, and, oh, by the way, in the Hebrew lore, the Mishnah, the kind of the oral traditions of that of the people, Jewish lore says that the tree of life was 
an olive tree. By the way, I found another uh, fascinating thing, and I've got a picture of it that I'll show you in a second as we get through here. But the, the uh, part of the Jewish lore is the idea that the olive tree stood there and that the tree of life, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was actually a vine that grew around the olive tree. So therefore you have a tree and a vine, which by the way, we're going to talk about these all these olive trees, but we call it the allegory of the what? The vineyard. How come all these trees are in a vineyard? Because traditionally you they, they grow these together. They grow vines and grapes and olive trees on the same land. They're mutually beneficial to each other. Okay? So the belief was is that the tree of life was an olive tree, which would make the, the fruit an olive. I have a hard time believing that would be, you know, tasty above all that is tasty. Unless you infuse it with some garlic or something like that. We, we, we keep it at our house. I, I cook with a lot of olive oil, and I've got my garlic, and I've got my cilantro, and my chili. But it's all infused, and that's the straight olive oil wouldn't be that tasty. Anyway, okay, so uh, the tree of life is an olive tree. Um, the Savior stu- suffers at Gethsemane, which is the olive press. We've talked about how they, they start off red, especially the tame ones. They start off red, and under the press, you're getting the, the olive uh, oil is originally red as it, as it comes out under the pressure of all of that, and, we, and, and all of the symbolism that goes into the, the weight of the sins of the world, and, and out comes this red. Okay. Uh, by the way, so when the Savior gets ready to descend into heaven, where does he go? Of course. Why not go from the Mount of Olives? Okay. And that's why I say that it is so infused into all aspects of this that it would make perfect sense that if we're going to have an allegory, it would be, in, it would be about olives and olive trees. If, if the whole New Testament and had taken place in Texas... We might be talking about the allegory of the fajita. (laughs) And the mesquite tree. And somebody sold horse apples into the middle of the olive tree. But that's why you go back to this and it is so part of this entire imagery. It's, It's kind of fun. Okay. Oh, and then by the way, and then finally... What is what we call him Jesus the Christ? What does Christ mean? Anointed one. What's he anointed with? Olive oil. Yeah, that has to be consecrated, and, and we and we have maintained that to this day. The sense of being anointed, okay, with olive oil. And we could go on and on. There's a lot of other. Okay. Now, hear, O ye house of Israel, 
And hear the words of me, a prophet of the Lord, Zenos. For behold, thus saith the Lord, I will liken thee, O house of Israel, like unto a tame olive tree, which a man took and nourished in his vineyard. Okay, now, we need to know that there are two species of olive trees. There are tame olive trees and there are wild olive trees. We're not completely sure if they're not two different species. But they're pretty darn close enough uh, that they can be intermixed between them. The tame olive tree obviously takes a lot of cultivation. You've got to work with it. We're going to talk about that in a second. A lot of work goes into that. The the wild olive tree grows just about anywhere. That's why I say if you go anywhere in the Mediterranean area, there are olive trees everywhere. The difference between the wild olive tree and the tame olive tree, the, the wild olive tree um, do, doesn't need uh, that cultivated a soil. It's, its fruit is uh, bigger, but it's not as tasty as the tame olive tree. The olives there are better. That makes sense. Okay? Now, um, So he had a tame olive tree which a man took and nourished in his vineyard. It grew and it waxed old and began to decay. Now I don't want to go too heavy on the history side because I think I want to make this about the atonement and less about Israelite history. But I want you to picture for a second. When he's talking about Israel and Israel is a tame olive tree and it's planted and it's rooted in this ground. What is Israel, this will help you understand a little bit, what is Israel rooted in? First of all, where is it? Well, it's in Israel. But what is it rooted in? What does Israel hold on to? Where does it, what is its roots connected to? Laws of Moses. That there's the traditions and everything that tie into this thing and the law of Moses is one of those things that it's rooted in. Does that make sense? So why would a tame olive tree rooted here, why would it begin to decay? Why does any tree start to decay? Lack of nourishment. Why is it not getting the nourishment from this roots? How come? The soil is depleted. Why? What depleted the soil? In this case, it would be the traditions and the uh, practices of the people in in Israel, the way they worshipped. Sure. And the false traditions and all that. So as the Deuteronomist kicked in and it was all about the law of Moses and less about revelation and inspiration from heaven... They were getting less and less moisture. They were getting less and less nourishment. They were trying to draw moisture from something that was never intended to be their sole sole source of moisture. Yeah. Right. Uh, Absolutely. So rather than get they're getting it from the wrong source, that means that they slowly get depleted. 
And as, as year went on and the traditions went on and they drew less and less and less, now the tree begins to decay. There's no proper nourishment. There's no proper moisture. So the tree starts to die. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, and the master, the vineyard goes forth. He sees that the olive tree began to decay. And he said, uh, what does he say? I will prune it and dig about it and nourish it that it may shoot forth young and tender branches and perisheth not. And five, and I, he pruned it and digged it about and nourished it according to his word. Okay? Now, I'm going to pop back here. There are, we're going to find I have a hard time getting these in order, but let me give you this first one here, and I'll go backwards. Okay? We're going to find four major lessons. There are a lot of lessons in here. I just picked out four uh, that I wanted to hit, hit today. So, four big ones. Here's lesson number one. Verse four. God, from verse four, God is very active in his vineyard. God is very active in his vineyard. Um, I love this quote. There's a man that's actually trying to start a, try to grow olive trees in, in Texas. I found, found him online. He's not quite sure if he's there yet because it takes like 10 years before you get your first crop. And so he's working really hard at it. But I loved his statement. He says, for thousands of years in and around the Mediterranean, the statement was, if you grow olive trees, you work hard and die poor. <laughs> your kids work hard and have a decent life. And your grandkids don't work very hard and make a fortune because they sell the property. <laughs> uh, that puts it all in perspective. So I don't know if we're ever going to make anything out of this. But ultimately, we'll probably try really hard and, die, and sell it to the grandkids, and they'll make a fortune off of the land. Growing olive and tame olive trees is hard. We have from like the second century BC writings from Rome, a Roman kind of handbook about how to grow and and prune and cultivate olive trees. And they're specific. Make sure that you, you plant them off to this first moon. And then you do this. And then the Jews started adding their little laws as they would about what you can and can't do and what trees you can mix and you can't mix. There are all kinds of rules about this because it was so exacting. Okay? So, if we go back here... Uh, oh, by the way, I'll do that one. That is traditionally... That's where you get trees and vines. Traditionally, uh, we, we were in Sicily in, a, as you, uh, and in the city of Terramina. And as you look down, you can just see all of these olive trees and groves and everything. And the, and the vineyards and the tree, olive trees are kind of interspersed. And, and, and when we talk about nourishing in a second, you can actually take, when you make wine... And they talk about wine on the leaves, L-E-E-S, wine on the leaves. 
The lees is kind of the, the wine scuzz. <laughs> it's, the, it's the lumpy stuff at the bottom of the wine. And you, can, and you skim off the wine on the, the lees, the wine lees, and it gives you this, this organic pulp stuff at the bottom of wine. Well, you can actually take this, the, the wine lees, and actually use it to help nourish the olive trees. You, olive trees can be dunged. That's why a lot of times they'll have sheep and goats and stuff like that, and they'll carefully gather the manure, and like three times a year, and the, and the Roman thing says after midnight. I don't know, so you don't have to look so much, or maybe it smells less or something. I don't know. <laughs> To take this manure and dung the olive trees. But you also take uh, vegetable organic leaves to also nourish the trees. Because it's kind of compost kind of thing. Okay, Because the, the land in and of itself is not going to provide enough nourishment in the long run to support a tame olive tree. It will a wild one, but if you want the good fruit and these very broad trees you're going to have to very carefully nourish it on a regular basis. You can't ignore it very long. You've got to work hard at it. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Can I just say, as a side note, um, about 20 years ago, we went on a company um, excursion to France, and we went on a tour of the wineries yeah. in Bordeaux, France. And right. it was very interesting. We didn't get to taste, but everybody else did, but... Um, I was really impressed to find out some very similar things. They're fine lines. Those vines have to grow grapes for over 20 years yeah. before they make them into wine. And I remember asking them, what do you do with the grapes? And they said, well, we just sell them to eat. But they're not fine enough to be made into wine. So isn't that interesting that wine is used for the sacrament? Yeah. And so it comes from some place where there has been much effort. So we cut, and then kind of cool too that we get that kind of wine, and it's going to nourish the olive trees. It's going to, okay, okay. All right. So lesson number one here. Look at look at what the Lord is doing. He said, "I will, I will prune it. Prudent meaning what? Cut it back. Cut off some limbs. Do we get pruned?" If the Lord is working hard enough, this is not an absentee God. He's saying He's a very active God. And He's pruning us. And what is He pruning? All of our stupids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the current bush. Yes. Yeah, if you never really... By the way, do you know, if you if you actually go online, you can actually get the original... Uh, you can MP3 of the current bush. How could you do it, and how could you cut me down? <laughs> it's the UB Brown way of talking. I was making such great progress. <laughs> Wonderful talk. Okay? And he talks about being pruned. And dig about it. Uh, keep it upset. Break us out of our out of our habits and nourish it, that it may bring forth. Um, and and in fact, something like on the order like twenty two or twenty three times do we get the term nourishing? That the Lord is actively nourishing these these trees. He's a very active God. Okay. 
All right. Um, now, as, as it begins to go bad, the Lord is going to do something very interesting here. If he's going to save the tree, what's he going to have to do? Because no, after all this nourishing, it's still dying. <coughs> and by the way, Jacob will say in Jacob 6, how do we nourish? By the good word of God, right? So spirituality-wise, part of preparing these trees for the atonement is to be nourished by the good word of God. All right. Now, so here comes the second one. Here's lesson two. Starts in verse 18. Wild branches can nourish old roots. Wild branches nourish old roots. Just shocking it is, shocking that Joseph Smith sitting in upstate New York did such a great job in coming up with very complex ideas about how to prune an olive tree in ancient Israel. Boy, for a guy that was just riding off the top of his head and a little crazy and staying up all night running around the neighborhood stirring everybody up and being drunk a lot and digging for treasure that he had time to actually pull this together. That's amazing. Okay? Now, so here's what he's going to say. Uh, I have a plan. What I'm going to do to save this tree that is dying. The roots are still good, but it's no longer getting any nourishment. I have a plan. I'm going to begin grafting. I'm going to take some of the... the I'm going to cut off some of these trees here, and then I'm going to go out to these wild olive trees that are out there. I'm going to cut off branches, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to graft them into the tame olive tree. Okay? Now, by the way, from a history standpoint... This idea of going out and finding a wild tree and bringing a branch and coming over here and plugging it into a tame one. Anybody name me a servant that might have done that in, in the history of the church? His name was Paul. His name was Paul. Paul was one of the servants that would go out and bring in a wild branch and come over here and plug it in to this root. That was the journeys of Paul. Okay. Uh, now, take thou the branches of the olive tree, graft them in the steads thereof, and so they go out and they do that. But this is fascinating. Look at this. So off they go to work. Here's one of those times when Joseph Smith was incredibly lucky in what he was making up off the top of his head. Verse 16, And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard and also the servant went down into the vineyard to labor. All of our research tells us that in, in northern Israel, if you're going to construct uh, a vineyard and you're going to grow olive trees, they have to be on the west side to catch the most sun. And what they would do is they would put the villa, the house, over this land, they would put that up on top. So picture a house up on top, the villa, and then a long sloping land, and that's where you're going to put the vineyard and the olive trees. 
So it, he's absolutely accurate when he says, And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard, his servant said, went down into the vineyard to labor. They, they really did. Okay? And beheld the tree in which the wild branches had been grafted, and it sprung forth and began to bear fruit. And it beheld that it was good. Now, I spent some time on this driving Cindy nuts this week. Uh, my understanding of horticulture tells me that uh, you, the water shows up through the roots, and the roots nourishes the branches, not the opposite. So that the branches are nourishing the roots. That seems to be off to me. That's kind of strange. And yet they've been doing this for thousands of years. There's a process here I don't understand so that I can get the application to why it is that it's in here. Okay, now, you get a clue here though. Verse 18. And he said to the servant, Behold, and, and he says, I know Kevin's going to ask this, so we'll put this in the thing in the first place. Okay? Behold, the branches of the wild tree have taken hold of the moisture of the root thereof. There was moisture available. That the root thereof hath brought forth much strength. Wow. And because of the much strength of the root thereof, the wild branches have brought forth tame fruit. Wow. Now, See if this makes some sense to you. This is what I thought too. Okay, if um, the roots are getting the moisture from where the ground, where they're rooted into, and we know that that has ceased to be nourished, and we know that it's not providing the moisture. That's why it's decaying and it's in trouble. And now we're going to take, but they've been well nourished and always taken care of. Then we're going to go out and we're going to get wild branches, and we're going to come over here and we're going to plug those guys into the tame tree where are the wild olive trees used to getting their moisture from as the dews from heaven descend the dews of Mount Carmel where are they designed to get their moisture from these wild roots these wild branches from the air, from up. Tame olive tree is used to getting their nourishment from the roots, from the law of Moses, looking down. These wild branches that we're about to bring in here, where are they going to draw their moisture from? Up. They're going to bring with them moisture that's going to help nourish the roots. Again, remember when we were in Malta, and we were in a small branch in Malta, okay? And here is the, the, the churches in, of Greek Orthodoxy. Greek Orthodox Church is very, very rooted in culture and tradition and, and trying to plant an outpost of the church in this hard, scrabble, tradition people in places like Malta and Crete and Athens is incredibly difficult. So, when we were in Malta, did we run into many Maltese mem members? No, they were from 
England and Australia and expats from America. And guess what had happened to them? They had been grafted, these wild Gentiles had been grafted into this branch in Malta and bringing with them a tradition of revelation and inspiration coming from above and bringing moisture to this place. And we call it, by the way, a branch. <laughs> what a shock that would be. There is strength there. There's truth there. The law of Moses was meant to point their souls to Christ. There is truth there. There is moisture to be had. But it needs to be combined with the moisture, the inspiration, and it has to be grafted in. And between the two, there's enough moisture. And, it, and suddenly, these wild branches... These wild pieces, these wild converts that come into your midst, they're producing what? Not just fruit, but good fruit, tame fruit. Suddenly they're changing what they're producing because they're able to draw on the roots. But in a, in a very important way, their energy, their inspiration, their ideas, their strength save the roots. Isn't that amazing? Why do you think we push so much on missionary work? Like, like a number one of the number of the brethren have said, this church is one de one generation away from being dead. Yeah, it would perish without this, without the wild branches being brought in. Okay. So in our life, he's saying, I'm going to take. If you get too rooted in your traditions. And you're looking down, I'm going to have to bring in and graft into you wild ideas. I have to shake you up so that it will save you. And again, there's so many layers we could look at this in terms of every ward and branch. I, I spent this morning, by the way, trying to find the origin of the word branch in the church. Nobody seems to know. At least Google has no clue. <laughs> I think I know. Because it is the perfect explanation for a small unit of the church to be called a branch. And generally that branch will have things grafted into it. I just think it's awesome. Okay? All right. Huh. Okay, so this is wonderful. So here comes the wildness, and it's, and it's helping the root, and now it's producing good fruit, and they all live together happily forever. Amen. Except that now the Lord goes away, gives it time to grow, and then an amazing thing starts to happen down here in verse 37. He goes out to see how they're doing. But behold, the wild branches have grown and have overrun the roots thereof. And because that the wild branches have overcome the roots thereof, it has brought forth much evil fruit. Wow. There, there is a point here at which too many wild branches can overwhelm the roots. Did that happen in early Christianity? Like when? 
300 years after Christ, and we have uh, King Constantine, and we have the early writers and reformers of the church sure. come in and introduce new traditions and new habits that are uninspired. So you got the, the Hellenized, the, the Greek uh, members in Corinth and in uh, Ephesus and all of these, and they're bringing with them all the idea, we love Jesus Christ, we love the sacrament, we kind of also like Zeus and Athens. We like those, that stuff too. Uh, and in fact, our, our Greek guide told us that. She says, yeah, we kind of, we, we, we do this stuff, but we kind of kept our own ideas about the myths and everything. She just said, yeah, we kind of mix it all together. Yeah. And at some point, it does what? It overwhelms the roots, the knowledge of it, and becomes bigger and takes over. And so really, this we call this the apostasy. Does that make sense? Yeah. And sometimes that happens now when members, the good members from the from Utah or the you know the <laughs> yes. states, go out in other places. The people from Zion come out here to the mission field and say, "I right? tell everybody else how it's supposed to be done." <laughs> and there's only one right way, and that's the way Utah does it. Well, it also happens when you're going to uh, South America in the sixties and seventies. Yes, they do. <laughs> That's right. We like we like our roots. We like our traditions. And in some cases, again, I've talked before. I think we'd be surprised if we went to a sacrament meeting in Ghana that there may be there may be people amening and shouting and and, and in some places at some points the church is saying that's a tradition. It doesn't get in the way of the roots, and we're fine with that stuff. But that's their tradition. We don't necessarily do it here, but they do it there, and it's okay. Except for the fact that we go, well, we're not sure. We're not sure we like this. And then, yes. Think with Paul, I, I'm amazed every time I read through He was. Poor Paul. He, he's trying to. He'd, he'd go out. He'd go out to these places, and he would establish uh, uh, the, these branches, uh, and. Uh, like on the island of Rhodes, he'd get a small branch, go in there, and they would be fine. And then he'd take off, and then the the collisions there start weirding out. And then he's got to say, wait a minute, the wildness is overcoming the roots. And he'd try and call them repentance, and they die off, and they're not able to preserve them. Yeah. Uh, we went to a meeting with Paul Dunn, and he said that's one of the reasons the general authorities travel around the church is to make sure that these traditions right. that are local don't overwhelm. Okay, so when they if we're going to send so so on Sunday, here comes here come to the Plano stake, here comes Elder Zwick and he's making some changes, but also there's a big uh, I don't know if you guys know, there's a leadership meeting on Wednesday night for all wards, ward and state councils at the Allen Stake Center and Elder Zwick is going to be there to do what? Nourish, prune, dung, <laughs> trim, dig. Well, even in the Nephite times, the prophets would go around to regulate the church after they'd have a lot yeah. of wars and things like that. They, they had to do look, look, look at Alma in Alma 5. 
You know, you guys used to believe this. How do you, can you say you do now? Or have you forgotten it? If you could sing the song before, can you do it now? And they're, and they're pruning and cutting and snipping and nourishing. And then we get, what about infant baptism? Leave us on our own. We keep wanting to do that stuff. And he goes, no, we don't do that. Even the Savior had to come to the Nephites and go, stop it. <laughs> Quit doing that. I didn't say you could do that. Snip, snip, snip. Prune, prune, prune. Dig, dig, dig. Okay? Because that's what happens ultimately here. But we don't want to be too <coughs> condescending about other people doing that because nearly every woman in this room has now or in the past worn a wedding ring. Yeah, yeah, we have these traditions. We hold on to them. Absolutely. Okay, we got 10 minutes. Okay. All right. Buckle up. Okay. Uh, all right, so, by the way, there is a part. Oh, look at this, 48. So, how come they did that? Well, it came to pass, the servant said unto his master, Is it not the loftiness of the vineyard? Isn't it the pride of the vineyard? Have not the branches thereof overcome the roots? That which is good. My idea is better than yours. No, your idea is better, worse than mine. And we're going to argue about whose ideas are better. And, the, and it's finding the root has to say, the first presidency has said, to try and clarify that. Okay? All right. This is the reason the trees in the vineyard become corrupted. All right. Lesson three. Verse 22. Good fruit can come from poor ground. Good fruit can come from poor ground. In his going about, interesting they have an interesting experience. Verse 20. It came to pass that they went hither where the master had hid the natural branches of the tree. Remember, he's going to take those cuttings and he's going to move them off to all parts of the, of the vineyard. And he said unto the servant, Behold these, and he beheld the first that it had brought forth much fruit. And he saw also that it was good. And he said unto the servant, Take this fruit that I may preserve it, nourished it, and it brought forth much fruit. And, and the servant says, um, How comest thou hither to plant this tree or this branch? It was the poorest spot in all the land of the vineyard. Why did you take wonderful little plants and stick them in the worst part of the vineyard? Why would you do that? Give them their best shot. And the Lord says, Counsel me not. Verse 22. I knew it was a poor spot of ground. Therefore I said unto thee, I have nourished this branch in this poor spot. I have nourished it a long time. I have. And thou beholdest it has brought forth much fruit. Good fruit can come from poor spots of land. Because the Lord provides an extra measure of nourishing to those in poor spots of land. Poor spots of land like what? Humble people. What other poor spots do we have? 
Africa? How about in your own ward? What poor spots of land do you have in your own ward? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, where you have uh, single moms that are struggling to, to kind of hang on. Or people that came from very difficult, humble circumstances and they're learning to have to kind of get their, their life ahead. How about chronic illnesses? How about, how about uh, wives are struggling while their husbands are struggling with pornography? Okay, It looks like a poor spot of ground. How come I ended up in this poor spot? I did everything right. I kept the commandments. And this is, Heavenly Father, this is kind of a poor spot of ground. How come I got put here? And he says, I know, but I've been nourishing it a long time. Yeah. How come we're stuck in Tooele? <laughs> or Delta? Oh. We were in Nauvoo. We were in Kirtland. We were in Nauvoo. And now I'm stuck in Tooele. And that looks like a, a worser spot. Okay? How come my circumstances are really hard? We're out here in the middle of the desert. Yeah. 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 And they're producing great fruit. And sometimes we say, well, you know what? I've been given too much. This is this is too hard. And the Lord says, I know. I know it's a bad spot of ground. I understand that. But I'm going to nourish you a long time in this spot. If you'll let me nourish you. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes our, our, our tree has gone bad. It looked like a good spot of ground when we bought it, when I married it, when I birthed it, and it's gone bad. Can I still get good fruit from it? Sometimes you have to wait a long time. You've got to nourish it a long time before you finally see the fruit. That's a, that's a good point. Okay. Yeah. 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 He was there. Now, t- take that idea, and then we'll, let's move to the last point. We got five minutes. Okay. Because here is the last one. Because you're right, he's been nourishing all along. And it is interesting that a lot of this nourishing oftentimes, again, if, if, if our Roman handbooks are correct, is happening in the middle of the night. Why, why it has to be done at night, I don't know. It, it, it is. It's in the dark. Okay? Or, that, or it may look like as he's, as he's busy digging around or stuff like that, it may look, look like God is not just absent. He's letting bad things happen to me. You've cut me down. Okay? I've been pruned. But the last, the last one here is in verse. That's no, not twenty-two. That was twenty-two too. It's like seventy-two. Finally, the Lord labors alongside His servants. 
in... 72. I think it's 72, isn't it? Yep. Okay. In 71. In 71, go and labor in the vineyard with all your might. This last time I'm going to nourish my vineyard. We're going to go out. We're going to put an all-court press. We're going to get this done. Labor with your might with me that you may have joy in the fruit. 72, and it came to pass that the servants did go and labor with their might, and the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them. When we are called as servants to labor in the vineyard, whether it's in our own lives, whether it's in our own families, whether it's in our own primary classes, he says, I will labor with you. I will be there alongside you. I am not an absentee God. Sometimes, but it may look like sometimes my nourishing looks like I put you in a poor spot. And, and you have a hard time for a, uh, some period of time, for some season going, this doesn't look much like nourishing. This looks like pruning. And he says, yeah, I know. It will be. But there, after a period of time, you'll be able to look back and say, but the fruit that came out of that is better than it would be if I had it on my own. So let me just, let me just finish with this. I find it fascinating, if we go back to the, the olive tree culture, I find it fascinating that if there's a sense that the tree of life, and I'm thinking, for instance, of uh, Lehi's vision of the tree of life, if that were indeed an olive tree, as far as our interpretation of it, what is the fruit of the, the tree of life in Lehi's dream? It's, it's, it's Christ, right? It's His grace. It's His love. So in a sense, He's the fruit. And we're supposed to go taste of His fruit, what He offers us. Okay. Remember that in the, in the dream, those that stayed at the tree got to the tree and fell on their knees. And, and that put them in a place that somebody could then give them of the fruit. I find it fascinating that the in this in this allegory, in, instead of the in this case, the tree of life is supposed to be uh, the the Israel. Who's the fruit? We are. The fruit that he is gathering unto himself is us. We're not just the servants; we're also the fruit. In a sense, this is saying we are in the similitude of Him. We, are, we have become like Him. Where He was the fruit, there in this allegory, we are the fruit. And the fruit is our own reconciliation. He is saying ultimately, at the end of all of this, what am I looking for? I'm going to go out into all parts of the vineyard and I'm going to bring everybody home. I'm going to reconcile them. I want them home. I want them at one. I want them atoned. And to do that, I want to bring you home. I will do whatever. I'll, I'll prune you while you're out there. I'll nourish you. But then there's going to come a moment. I'm sending servants out to get you. And to gather you up and bring you home. Before the vineyard will be burned. Well, that's us. And it's about as plain as anything I can see.
That's why I, th this is just incredibly beautiful to me. You can see why it is that it fired the imaginations of Paul and Nephi and Lehi and the Savior. Bear you my testimony where it's fruit. He intends to bring us home. Let him do it. Let him bring us home. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.